0: continuing our series on the seven churches of revelation uh before we get started i want to just uh give you a a little story here and some information on church polity is that okay kind of understand a little bit this was sent to me by a dear friend of mine who uh, shall remain nameless um but i'm sure sam won't care if i say it share it so um all right um This kind of gives you a little idea of of a little bit of church polity, okay? The Presbyterian church called a meeting to decide what to do about their squirrels. After much prayer and consideration, they concluded the squirrels were predestined to be there and that they shouldn't interfere with God's divine will. At the Baptist church, the squirrels were taking an interest in the baptistry. The deacons met and decided to put a water slide on the baptistry and let the squirrels drown themselves. The squirrels liked the slide and unfortunately knew instinctively how to swim, so twice as many squirrels showed up the following week. The Methodist church decided that they were not in a position to harm any of God's creatures, so they humanely trapped their squirrels and set them free near the Baptist church. Two weeks later, the squirrels were back when the Baptists took down the water slide. But the Catholic Church came up with a very creative strategy. They baptized all the squirrels and consecrated them as members of the church. Now they only see them at Christmas and Easter. And not much was heard from the Jewish synagogue. They took the first squirrel and circumcised him, And they haven't seen a squirrel since. That was good. Thank you. A little fun tonight before we get started. All right. Revelation chapter 3. Thank you, Sam. I needed that laugh this week. I appreciate that. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. The church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Coming along the fifth church in our installment of these seven churches, um, from All of the churches that we've looked at this point, there's been a prevailing lesson. Uh, One of the prevailing lessons is this, that we can look at the outward appearance of things, but God looks at the heart. We can look at the outward appearance of what things look like, but God's more concerned about what's going on on the inside. Um, We have also had to point out that God is not nearly as impressed as the things that impress us. And so there are some lessons in, in Sardis. Um, this was a church that looked to be alive, but they were actually dead. Um, it was literally a church that was like stocked up with living dead people, like piling up on top of corpses, kind of, if you will. If you look at this church, there's some comparisons that you can make. Uh, let, let's kind of look at some of these other churches. We talked about Ephesus. Ephesus was a place that had lost their first love uh, Pergamum was a place that was gripped by worldliness. Thyatira was a place of uh, toleration of sin. But Sardis here in this passage has, has reached a, a new low. It was a church that was dominated by sin. It was a church that was dominated by false doctrine and unbelief. Um, kind of give you a little bit of history, and this will help you as, as we look through this. Um, Sardis was about thirty miles around the Horn. If you continue up around the thought, if you look at the map from Thyatira, it was one of the richest cities in the entire world. Um, It had; it was one of the world's major trade centers of that time. Um, It had a river that was right there in it that people would pan for gold in, and it had a thriving wool industry, and um, it would uh, make. They had makers there that would make really expensive dyes for, for the wool and and sell them uh, there as well. It would have received the name of Sardis because of the stones that were found in that region. And they used those Sardis stones as amulets. Um, and the uh, pagan uh, gods that that were worshipped there, they would use that to drive away evil spirits, if you will. Um, it was a, a very good climate of uh, as far as the the attraction of the center here. One of it has a very famous citizen. Have um, you ever heard the name Aesop? Aesop's fables, maybe. Um, Aesop was a member of 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 Sardis around six B.C. Um, he was a slave that had been given his freedom because of his accomplishments. His fables had such an ability to negotiate peace um, between warring leaders that he would also often be called into those kind of settings. Um, and typically he would go to places like Corinth or Athens and, and uh, actually try to give some, some kind of peace there. Um, actually, the king of Sardis, um, Croesus, uh, used Aesop as one of his royal advisors. And he was also sent to a place called Delphi, um, and that would be his final mission. He went with some gold to take to the people from the king of Sardis. And when he got there, he was so disgusted by their greed that he refused to give them the gold. And so they, in turn, turned on him and executed him. Um, Sardis was a, a center of worship of, of Sybil, who was considered the mother of the gods? So, one thing that you'll notice in this part of the world, especially, um, and as you continue to go around, even into Greece, and as as you read your your scriptures, you'll see this in like Corinthians and Romans and and some of those areas, Ephesians, is this worship of false gods, because they were very much into, um, shall I say. Uh, pagan worship as it related to um, the Greek gods and the Roman gods and and that culture. And so that is how the church, the church is established in a place, in places where this was the already the established thought process of religion, I guess. Um, And so that is no different than here. Um, the thing about Sardis that I find interesting is this. These people that lived here lived in the lap of luxury. And they spent their lives working so that they could spend all their money on their own pleasure. That sounds kind of familiar. Um, Sardis was a place um, that that the church, the the Christian people, were not in danger in Sardis. There was no peril there. There was no life-threatening thing. There was no worship of Caesar um, like there was in different other places that we had talked about, like Pergamum. There was no um, persecution of them. They weren't slandered by Jews here. There was no internal heresy taking place inside the church. Um, there was absolutely no pressure from inside or outside. They just kind of could float along and do their own thing. And and uh, the church was completely at peace. But in the middle of all of that, it was found to be completely dead. Um, as I read through all of that, it, it got me thinking that there are some very, similarities there in the condition of Sardis and maybe even in the condition of America. That here we are as a group of people who, for the most part, we work and we work and we work so we can do what? Spend our money on us. We have no real persecution. I mean, if you stop and think about it, compared to what... A lot of other nations and a lot of other people see and and have we have very little, if any persecution um in this country we are uh we face a little bit of uh, more so now than we have in times past. It was never the case that we were ever slandered. It was never um any kind of pressure um it was a place that was completely at peace, right and yet I wonder. What happened in a lot of churches with a capital C? That maybe we found ourselves in the midst of peace to be dead. It has been my observation as I've looked through um, revivals and different things that have happened. Thank you, God. You can mute the uh channel thanks um, it must be a divine purpose to say this i don't know um that or windows just really likes it one of the two um, <laughs> totally lost my train of thought It's been my observation that as i as I looked at uh, times in the past um, revivals and different things that have happened, moves of God that have taken place, a lot of them are birth because the church is being persecuted uh, i mean you look throughout the book of acts and, and you'll find as the book of acts begins to unfold you'll find a theme that's being that, that is reoccurring and actually throughout scripture a theme that's reoccurring for the most part is that christians are being persecuted and as they're being persecuted what does that cause them to do it causes them to lead on god more right it causes us to study the scripture more it causes us to want to grow closer to god more and in a place where there's usually peace what typically happens to the church it gets complacent and we get to the place where it's just okay we just kind of go through the motions and we don't want to make any rifts and we like our peace and that typically was the case here at, at Sardis. I want to walk through this passage of Scripture here. Um, any thoughts on that before we continue on? As with all the other um, churches in Revelation, he talks to, to the angel of the church of Sardis, that is the pastor. He is talking to this um, to to the, to the person that uh, is at the church, this is a strong point that ministers have to pay attention to. I have this in my notes. Um, it would be safe for us to not say. Not only is the Lord looking in on the office of the pastor, but the ministry of the church as well. Um, as we move on into this into this thought process, I, I want us to look. He says there are seven spirits which are before the throne. We have a description here. He says, he who, has, who holds the seven spirits of God. Um, I want to give just a little bit of insight into that uh, thought process. Um, many of you have probably heard this thought process that seven is the number of perfection. Um, there are, it expresses the perfect way of how the Holy Spirit works and how God works. Um, there are some parallel passages, and I want us to turn there tonight. Isaiah chapter 11. If you'll turn back to Isaiah chapter 11, there are many scholars who put these two thought processes together because in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, um, Isaiah describes seven spirits, uh, all of which, if You look at your Bible, at least in my copy of the Scripture, all of them start with a capital S, which gives revelation to a uh, to to God in in its thought process. So let's let's read this chapter eleven, beginning in verse one. It says, "A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom." and of understanding, the spirit of counsel, and of might, the spirit of knowledge, and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears. So you have this idea of the seven spirits of God. Now we all know that there are not seven holy spirits. There is one. There is not seven verses of, there's not seven sons of God. There is one. His name is Jesus. But what it is talking about here is there are attributes and characteristics that are a part of the holy spirit that are a part of the godhead that are evident here in this passage of scripture and those are um Those are spirits or giftings, if you will, um, that are given here, the spirit of the Lord, and they are of God. This is God's characteristics and God's attributes. Am I making sense? So it's the spirit of the Lord. It is the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of knowledge. It is the spirit of uh, an understanding. I'm sorry, spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might and of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. Those are the seven things that make up this thought process as we move forward um, as, as he's talking about. This, the one who holds the seven spirits. Those are the kind of spirit thought processes that, that God has. God is, is, where, is, where do you get wisdom from? From God. Where do you get understanding from? From God. Where, where do you uh, get counsel and might, and knowledge. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And so the Bible talks about these things and, and Isaiah kind of spells them out for us here. And another thing to, to kind of look at as well is um, as you look at moving forward in the Spirit, one Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Um, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, he, he talks about, he says to Zerubbabel, he says, this happens not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You've probably heard that quoted before. This doesn't happen. You don't, you're not going to conquer. You're not going to move forward. You're not going to find um, the peace and the joy. and the, the, None of that happens by human might. None of that happens by human power. It only happens by the spirit of the Lord. And so um, those are some of the thoughts as we look at at this. There's one other passage I want to go to that points out to us um, and expresses some of the characteristics of how the Holy Spirit works. Um, Jesus told the disciples in the upper room some principles um, in John chapter 13 through 16. I, I just want to hit, um, I want to go to chapter 14 for just a minute. So if you turn there really quick, John chapter 14. I want to start reading in verse uh 15 okay John chapter 14 verse 15 it says, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. So the, maybe your version says instead of advocate, maybe your version says comforter. So the Holy Spirit, part of the Holy Spirit's thought process here is comforter and help. Okay. Helper and comforter. Verse 17, the spirit of truth. That's the second another one. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. That's a wonderful transition there that we're not going to have a whole lot of time to to discover, but that is the really to to be really frank with you, that is the difference of what happens because of Calvary and because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you the day of Pentecost. Um, it is no longer God with us. Um before when, when Jesus came to the earth, it was God with us. When he went to Calvary, it was God for us. When he went to when the baptism of the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, it was God in us. It, and so that kind of thought process, that's a wonderful transition there um, to help us to understand the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Um Moving on, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Um, Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. This is a personal presence of, of Christ as it bears witness with the Holy Spirit because they're the same. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus So when we accept Christ and Jesus and the Holy Spirit live in us, we have God with us, and it bears witness to that. Um, Moving on, it says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show them myself. Um, Then Judas, not... Judas Iscariot said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and He will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Um, there's, There's some really wonderful things in here. Um, talking about how the work of the Holy Spirit is is in every believer, how the Spirit will abide with us, and He will teach us those things as you continue to read on in chapter uh, 14, 25, and 26. Verse 27 talks about how um, He will give us an abiding sense of peace. And so these are all characteristics and duties and jobs of the Holy Spirit, if you will. And so I, I know I summed that up, but I went really quick over that. But I want us to understand that, you know, when he says, here's the one who holds the seven spirits, he's not talking about seven different spirits. He's talking about seven attributes. He's talking about one Holy Spirit. There's one God. And uh, that's what that's uh, talking about. I didn't want there to be any confusion tonight um, regarding that. Um, if you are interested, and this is a shameless plug, I'm not even teaching in the class, but here's a shameless plug. Um, During the Sunday School Hour, there's an amazing study that's taking place with Pastor Black. Um, He's talking about the Holy Spirit, and I would encourage you to plug into that class. It's at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. Um, They're just doing some wonderful things and studying um, really in-depth about the Holy Spirit, and so that would be a great opportunity for you to continue even this thought process as you go. You can jump in anytime. This week is a great time to start. Um, I've, I think I've said it in the message. God has one favorite time, and that's like right now. So don't wait around. Jump in and go. All right. Um, <clears throat> the message to the angel of Sardis, to the pastor of Sardis, was that the only hope the church had was for the Spirit of God to come to their aid. Um, this lifeless, dying church was in great need of a work of the Spirit. It was in great need to turn their heart to a place of of revival again, to let the Holy Spirit quicken them, to convict them of their sin, to help them to have the fruit of the Spirit in their life that was growing, to get guidance from the Spirit. And the only way a church can awaken is by when the people decide that I want God more than I want anything else. That's when a church comes alive. Sardis had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. They did all the right things. They did all the right stuff. They had all the right programs. They had a reputation of being the it church. But you know what? They were dead. Not because they were doing bad things, but because on the inside, there was nothing of the Spirit of God moving in their hearts. There was no growth This fruit of the Spirit was not evident in them. They were just going through the motions of church. Mm. There was no power. There was no anything in them. They, They were a church that had a good name. They had a good status. They had a good standing. They had a good prestige about them. And the Lord looks at them and He sees their works and He says, guess what? I see, I know your works, but you are... Dead, you have a name you you reputation in the community is that you 're alive you 're really doing stuff, things are really happening, but guess what you 're dead you 're dead. This would probably have been just to kind of give you a little kind of parallel to where where we would be now. this would have been the church to attend, man this would have been the one to go to in the region um, this probably would have been um Their parking lot would have been full. They probably would have had to have police officers escorting people out as they church let out, stopping traffic. The community probably would have known where the church was. The people would have enjoyed telling you that, man, I go to that church. The pastor probably would have been a rock star preacher. who wooed crowds. He probably would have had a couple of uh, TV programs and maybe even wrote a couple self-help books. I'm not picking on anybody. Please don't misunderstand that, all right? Don't go calling out of here saying, Pastor Joe! (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm not picking on anybody. They probably would have had a huge Easter thing and a big Christmas thing and the city would have showed up to see it. It would have been self-righteous. The citizens of the city would have looked at them one way, but I find it interesting that God looks at them in something completely different. I know your works. You have a name that says you're alive, but you're dead. There are some things that are about you that are barely alive and are about to die your works aren't perfect they're not complete they're spoiled they're flawed they're faulty they're damaged they're defective and if you don't change it it'll all be He goes on to make this assessment. He says, what you have remaining is almost dead. You've picked up on the fact that there are no compliments in this, I'm sure, by now. Um, some of the other church churches, he gives some compliments to them. And he says, oh, you're doing a great job with this, but I have one thing against you. I have this against you. There's nothing like that here in Sardis. There is no positive here. There is no, oh, you're doing a great job. Keep it up but change this no it was all listen you have a reputation of being this way but you're dead because the inside of you is like dead men's bones there's nothing in you um you're content um you are you you're you're not living and i stopped to think about that for a minute and and, and you whenever i read scripture text I, I analyze it a lot of different ways. Let me just kind of paraphr- let me just kind of detail how I do that. I'll take a whole text. I don 't just take little bits, I'll take the whole text and try to do it together, analyze what's going on, what's happening, culture, different things that are taking place, what God's saying here, and, and try to delve into that and get really deep into the study. But one of the ways I like to analyze Scripture is this, and I think all of us is an important thing to do. And it's probably one of the most important things that we need to do is look at Scripture and then hold it up to the mirror of my life. So if I'm looking at Scripture of this passage, there's something that I want to look at. I'm like, man, I'm doing all the right things. But on the inside, what's my spirit man like? Doing all the right things. Saying all the right things. Teaching Sunday school. i I'm involved in the church, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But I really don't have a relationship with God. I really don't have anything that's ongoing. I really, the inside of me is, is dying. And I wonder how many people, I wonder how many people sit in pews every Sunday and they do all the right things. But in here's nothing's changed. And on the outside, we're living. And we have the appearance and the reputation of being alive. But on the inside, we're dying. I wonder. When I look at this text, it causes me to evaluate me. And I pray that tonight that's something that it helps us to do is to evaluate ourselves. God, am I just going through the motions, or is there something more than this? I want to be alive. Let me give you some danger signs of a church that's dying. They're content to rest on past accomplishments. They're more concerned with ritual than spiritual relationships. The focus is on the social ills of the day rather than the spiritual change that's needed in the heart to change things. They're more concerned with material things than spiritual things. They're more concerned with what men think than what God thinks and what God said. They're more concerned with creeds and systems of theology than studying the Word of God and following what it says. There's a loss of conviction There's a denial of the only source of spiritual life, which is found in Christ. This church in Sardis had works, but it had no life. No life. Let give a minute because I'm going to give the, the re- remedy here. I'm going to give you what he says to do here next. Is there any thoughts? We've, we've analyzed the problem. Any thoughts? all right let's look at the, the the remedy then he says this in chapter two he said, in verse two he says wake up wake up man the lord wants them to be awake so that they can see the condition that they're in they've fallen asleep and not just listening to the pastor's message <laughs> they've fallen asleep spiritually in the church and he says wake up at least that's the way my bible says it it's got an exclamation point there wake up if you looked at the amplified version i love what it says it says rouse yourself and keep awake stir yourself up and get awake God can use different circumstances to bring us to the place of being awake. I pray He never has to do that. The next thing He says here is this. He says, strengthen the things, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Find the spiritual things that are alive in the church and support them. Strengthen the things that remain, the things that are causing you to call out to Me. Strengthen those things and support them. Get them active. Get them in full pursuit of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Go after revival. Go after spiritual awakening. Go after a move of God. Go after the person of God, not just the hand of God. I think so many times we go after the hand of God and we neglect His face. God, what can you do for me? God, what can you, uh, and, and so many times, and I wonder, I don't know this, but I wonder if the church of Sardis, whenever they would pray, they would pray, God, bless our efforts. God, put your hand to our efforts so that we can see the hand of God moving. And Jesus is saying this, I don't want you to be so concerned with just my hand because if you're just concerned with my hand, guess what? You are not really connected to me. Connect with my face. Seek my face. Seek after me. Not just what I can do, but who I am. And he says, strengthen those things. Go after me. And he goes on to say, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Verse 3 says, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Remember what you heard from the Gospel. Sardis, the church at Sardis, it's important here that you think back to the spirit of devotion. That you think back to that alertness. That you think back to that energy that you had. To that passion that you had when you became saved. And when you first met Christ, stir up that hunger and that thirst that's inside of you that was present early on. Think of how you used to live. Think of what your priorities used to be. And stir that up. Think of the passion that you had when you prayed. Think about the passion that you had whenever you were uh, seeking after me and, and through through the, the, the things that I had been speaking to you through the, the word of, of the apostles and the things that have been written to you. Reestablish the love that you had for truth. The next thing he says here is he says, and hold it fast. You know what that's a command for? A command for obedience. Obedience, to be obedient to the principles that's taught. And then finally, he says this, repent. Have remorse over your sin, but don't just have remorse over your sin. Lay it down and walk away. Do a 180. That's what repentance means. It means I was heading down a path that was going this way. And when I repent, I turn away from that and I go a completely different direction. In in the truest sense, that's what repentance means. I wonder, I don't, I don't know this, but I, I see this happening in the Church of America so often, is people will come and, and they'll repent and, and we'll lay that sin down here at the altar and we'll say, oh God, please forgive me of this sin. And we'll drop it down here. But then we, well, you know, I might like that. And we pick it back up. Just in case we, this God thing doesn't work. Or just in case I get bored. Or just in case I might need that someday. And we don't just do that with sin. Oh man, I I feel the Holy Spirit in this. Um, We don't just do that with sin. We do that with a lot of things. God, I give you my insecurity, I give you my faults, I give you my stuff, I give you my life, I give you my anxiety, I give you my sickness, I give you my disease, and we leave it here, and what do we do? The next very next thing we do is we pick it right back up when we get home, and we go the same process, and the same thoughts, and the same stuff, and the same mentalities, and we never ever leave anything right here. We always pick it back up and carry it with us. And I wonder what might happen in the church of America if we finally got to the place where we repented and we left things at the altar and we left things on the throne of God and we said, God, I don't want that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want that part of my life anymore. I don't want that to consume me anymore. I'm tired of it. I'm going to leave it here and I'm going to pick up the things of you and I'm going to take those things with me and leave that stuff here. I wonder what might happen if that was the case. It was amazing. When you read this, if you don't know some of the history about this town of Sardis, you'll miss this next point because this is, this is pretty powerful. He says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know the time I will come to you. Now, many of us think, and, and, and that's true, there, there is some of that, we, we kind of understand that a little bit, but let me tell you, the people of Sardis, when they heard that and they read that, there was something they understood that was beyond what you understand when you read it, and I'll tell you why. Sardis was a town that was built in such a way that there was no way to get into it. It was securely fortified by the land structure around it. In fact, if you were to look at the city of Sardis um, throughout the, the, the early stages of the city, there were only two times that this city ever fell into the enemy hands. Two times. Once was from the king of Persia, and the other one was Alexander the Great. Both times, those two kings attacked at night. Do You know why they attacked at night? Because they found that the guards had such an attitude that they thought that they were impenetrable that they would be sleeping. And they attacked when the city slept. Two times that happened. And both times they were taken over. In fact, if you looked at this particular passage of Scripture, you know that the book of Revelation is written somewhere around um, 80-90. Around 90 A.D. Between 85 and 95 A.D. Alexander would have conquered this city Probably a few hundred, a couple hundred years before, I'm guessing. Trying to remember Alexander's time with the Roman time, but it would have probably been somewhere around 300 BC, two to 300 BC, I believe. So you're about three to 400 years from that, right? That's a lot of generations. (laughs) We don't remember those things, right? I mean, think about our history for a minute. Three, three hundred years ago, we were right in the middle of a revolutionary war with England, we were just kind of. Uh, well, even farther back than that, there'd be seventeen, seventeen. We were just kind of getting things rolling over here in America three hundred years ago. How many of you remember the stories of great, 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 great grandpa telling you about all that stuff? No, right? What do you remember? What the history books tell you, right? And so here, the Lord is telling this church, listen. I know the people that are living here this time, you may not remember, but it's written down in your history, and you'll know this, that if you don't change your way, I'm going to come like those two armies came in the middle of the night. And you'll not know when I'm coming, but I will bring destruction upon you. So man, that was like a real eye-opener to this city. It was like a real boom to them. It was a clear thing to repent and to watch keep watch um uh, moving along quickly oh my goodness i got preaching and didn't get to this point here all right moving to uh chapter verse four it says yet you have a few people inside us who have not soiled their clothes they walk with me they're dressed in white for they are worthy they are worthy these are the ones that uh, he commends he says, Men, there are some who are living for me even in a place like this. Um, there are some who, are, who, who haven't defiled their garments. They are pure. Uh, garments throughout Scripture, if you look, there's a couple references I'll give you. I'm not going to go there tonight um, just for the sake of time. But Isaiah 64, 6. In the book of Jude, verse 23, talks about how Scripture, when you talk about garments and being white or soiled, it was a symbolism for character. The Lord had noticed that there were a few people um, that hadn't soiled their clothes. That word soiled in the Greek is mulano. M-O-L-U-N-O Moluno. I'm sure that's not how they pronounce that, but for us tattered English people, that's what that looks like. Which means to stain, to defile, to smear, or to pollute. It was a word that would have been familiar to Sardis because they were, remember what we said earlier? They were experts in wool dye. So they knew what it meant to put dyes and stuff in to, uh, to make things different colors. Um, The Lord promises that these faithful few will walk with Him in their garments of white because they are worthy. Even in the midst of being a dead church, He commends those who are committed to personal holiness and character. The conclusion of this text, He says, The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. They will acknowledge that, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and His angels. So, the conclusion, as with every one of the the letters to the churches, the Lord says, He who has an ear, let him hear. He also talks about the need to walk in holiness. Um, There's a a passage of Scripture that kind of talks about this uh, highway of holiness. It's in Isaiah 35, verse 8. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version Bible. It says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the, ho- the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. This holiness. God desires for us to be Holy. Uh, isaiah thirty five eight and i read it out of the english standard version um of scripture i did not read out in NIV. i v want us to uh to just kind of conclude this thought process tonight i don't want to be a lifeless church member or churchgoer. I want the passion and the power of God to be evident in my life. I don't want to just seek God's hand. I want to seek His face. I've often wondered, you know, we've been studying this for the last several weeks now, and I'm often wondered, what would, if, if this thought continued to the church in America right. I wonder what that would pin. As I studied this church of Sardis, I can't help but to think I saw a lot of similarities to what I see around in our society today. It's easy to uh, to look around and to (laughs) judge other people, I guess, or see the fruits of other people, if you will, if you want to sound spiritual about that. But the truth of it is this. Our country needs a move of God. Our community needs a move of God. And the way that a move of God happens is when people who call themselves, followers of the King, have an ongoing move of God happening in their heart and life every day. Because it's then that those people go out and touch the lost for Christ. I look at the book of Acts and i am uh, you never, you know, we talk about revivals and stuff and, you know, I'm not downing having spiritual emphasis move, move in services and that kind of thing. I'm not downing that at all. But the the thing that scares me is when we as a church talk about needing revival. We need revival. We need revival. Well, if something needs revived in the church, that's not good because you only revive things that are dead. In the church, we should be living in revival. You understand what I'm saying? as the body of christ as believers in the lord we should be living every day in the power of the holy spirit we should be seeing the move of god happen in our life every day as we follow jesus and that is the thing that people will notice and see about us look at the book of acts what did they see in the disciples what did they see in the people who got saved They saw a moving of the Holy Spirit that was something they didn't have. They saw the power of of God evident in the life, everyday life of the believers. And as they move forward doing everyday life, yes, some of them were called to preach. Some of them were called to teach. Some of them were called to be missionaries. Some of them were called to do this or go there. But as you read throughout Scripture, the church, the church, was about a group of people who had everything in common, who walked in the Spirit of God, who was anointed by God in their everyday life, and God moved in them, and they saw converts, and they saw a move that happened that changed the world. It wasn't just, yeah, God took 12 guys guys. He took 12 guys and he used them to plant and to start the church. But when this church got rolling and Peter began to preach and 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost, how many of you know those 3,000 people experienced change in their heart and change in their life and whenever they went out, they weren't living in the fact that they were dead. They were alive like they'd never been alive before. And what took place? It attracted people to them because they saw God they saw something in them that they didn't have and they didn't and that they needed and today it's the same principles that apply Will people see God in us to the place where we're growing and we're moving and we're living in the life blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit is evident in our life and people are seeing God in us? That they can't refute the fact that there's life in them. They're not dead. They're alive one of the main you know you know one of the main excuses why people don't want to go to church because they view the church as a place for of being boring and dead why would I want to go there oh my goodness god help us if anything don't want to be boring And they should sense the life and the presence of God in us. That's what will change the world. That's what will change our community. Is when they see that in us. Amen.